0: Good evening everybody, this is Jeff J. Brown uh, for another Dispatch from Beijing on the uh, Greenville Post website. Uh, This one is dated uh, 2015, August the 16th uh, day of the month. Uh, It will be cross-linked with 44 Days and SoundCloud, and the title of it is The Myth of Chinese capitalism there are some photos uh, in the original article if you'd like to go to greenville post and uh, look at them let's begin one of the great fabrications of western mainstream media among academics on and on wall street is that china starting in 1978 with Deng xiaoping's economic reforms became a capitalist country. The favorite Western shibboleth bandied about as that China's authoritarian regime, it's almost never called a government, runs a system of state capitalism. This is said with a genuflecting air of superiority and righteous consternation, because it's not quite copacetic. It smells like warmed-over chop suey. State capitalism is supposed to mean that China's leaders, whom I collectively call Baba Beijing, map out grand national plans and mandate to China's businesses what they are to do and not to do, whether they like it or not. Markets be damned and tax incentives and subsidies are offered to push them in the desired direction. This so-called state capitalism is considered to be inherently unfair since Western capitalism mythically only responds to the needs of free markets and the free movement of capital investments and goods across our planet in search of profits. The self-reassuring message is that China is fully in the fold of Western capitalism except Baba Beijing plays dirty using its own set of rules. Keeping it in the rubric of capitalism justifies why China has become, in just one generation, the world's largest economy in purchasing power parity terms, PPP, eclipsing the United States for the first time since 1872, when America's rapidly expanding colonial empire overtook China's centuries held number one position. During the last generation, China has become the world's number one manufacturer, exporter, and cross-border trader, as well as planet Earth's largest creditor. During this time span, Baba Beijing's policies have created the world's largest and still fastest-growing middle class, bringing a materialistic lifestyle to 1.3 billion citizens. This superficial image of the Chinese buying stuff and fluff just like super-consuming Westerners, further gives outsiders the impression that China is just a copycat Eastern version of crass Americana. Nothing of all this could be further from the truth. In 1949, China gained its liberation from Western and Japanese imperial subjugation and became history's most successful socialist and communist country. From 1949 to 1978, the Mao era, China's GDP grew an average of 7% per annum. Mao sincerely wanted the Chinese to get rich, just that all that wealth must be distributed as equally as possible. This is reflected in China's 1978 Gini coefficient being a very egalitarian 0.16. A Gini coefficient of zero means that all the income is evenly distributed to all citizens. And a coefficient of one means one person has all the income and everybody else has nothing. As a comparison, Sweden's is currently 0.25, the lowest in the world. China's is 0.37 the US's is 0.41, and for all of humanity, 0.65. During this same time frame, 1945 to 1978, the United States garnered 8% annual growth, just 1% more than the communist socialist model in China. Given that the United States and its NATO supplicants successfully shut out China from international finance, investment and trade until the mid-1970s, the Mao era economic statistics are truly remarkable. With the advent of Deng Xiaoping's reforms and opening up China's economy to do battle with Western capitalism, the Deng era, 1979 to 2012, China's economy has grown an average of 10 percent per annum, while America's growth averaged six percent a not well-known point of history is that many of Deng's reforms were actually started by Mao, Deng, and Zhou Enlai going back into the 70s and 60s which helps explain the Mao era's phenomenal socio-economic achievements. The, these earlier reforms were cleverly rebranded as new by Deng. Western capitalists eager lap, eagerly lapped it up in their lustful pursuit of Chinese profits starting in 1978. China's amazing socioeconomic success story during the Mao era has been completely expunged behind the great Western firewall. For Western colonialism, it must not become common currency that a once poor, technologically repressed country of China's size, any size for that matter, think of Cuba or uh, or Eritrea, can succeed economically and socially under the the banner of socialism and communism. It is for this reason that there is a relentless foghorn of Western propaganda to discredit any and all gains made by non-capitalist countries. The West's owners surely don't want free-thinking people and their leaders in Africa, the Americas and Asia to get any radical ideas. These imperial lies have continued into the Deng era. China is still a communist and socialist country. Baba Beijing has simply used the West's methods, markets, investment and technology to continue to advance the well-being of China's people within its non-capitalist economy. This is hard for most Westerners to wrap their heads around that China has been and continues to be a communist and socialist country. Till now, 2015, and will continue to be so as long as Baba Beijing is in power. This explains why the West has been relentlessly trying to overthrow the Communist Party of China, the CPC, since liberation in 1949. Like the United States, Russia, and France, the People's Republic of China was founded and hewn from revolution. China's long history and vision for the future are clearly spelled out in its constitution. The most recent version is from 1982 when Deng Xiaoping was China's paramount leader. Here is an excerpt from the Constitution's preamble. And I will begin uh, with this excerpt. After the founding of the People's Republic, the transition of Chinese society from a New Democratic to a Socialist society was effected step by step. Editors note the uh, New Democratic Society was China's first Republican period with the Sun Yat-sen 1912 to 1949. Back to the preamble. The socialist transformation of the private ownership of the means of production was completed. The system of exploitation of man by man eliminated and the socialist system established. The people's democratic dictatorship led by the working class and based on the alliance of workers and peasants, which is in essence the dictatorship of the proletariat, has been consolidated and developed. The Chinese people and the Chinese People's Liberation Army have thwarted aggression, sabotage, and armed provocations by imperialists and hegemonists, safeguarded China's national independence and security, and strengthened its national defense. Major successes have been achieved in economic development. An independent and fairly comprehensive socialist system of industry has in the main been established. There has been a marked increase in agricultural production. Significant progress has been made in educational, scientific, cultural, and other undertakings. And socialist ideological education has yielded noteworthy results. The living standards of the people have improved considerably. Both the victory of China's new democratic revolution and the successes of its socialist cause have been achieved by the Chinese people of all nationalities under the leadership of the Communist Party of China and the guidance of Marxism, Leninism, and Mao Zedong thought, and by upholding truth, correcting errors, and overcoming numerous difficulties and hardships. The preamble continues... The basic task of the nation in the years to come is to concentrate its efforts on socialist modernization. Under the leadership of the Communist Party of China and the guidance of Marxism-Leninism and Mao Zedong thought, the Chinese people of all nationalities will continue to adhere to the people's democratic dictatorship and follow the socialist road, steadily improve socialist institutions, develop socialist democracy, improve the socialist legal system, and work hard and self-reliantly to modernize industry, agriculture, national defense, and science and technology step by step to turn China into a socialist country with a high level of culture and democracy. The exploiting classes as such have been eliminated in our country. However, class struggle will continue to exist within certain limits for a long time to come. The Chinese people must fight against these forces and elements both at home and abroad that are hostile to China's socialist system and try to undermine it. That's the end of the uh, excerpt from China's Constitution, the preamble. China's Constitution clearly states that the Chinese people will govern themselves via their, via their People's Democratic Dictatorship. This dictatorship will guarantee the integrity of the People's Republic of China as a socialist state. This simply means that China's citizens invest in the CPC to represent them and act on their behalf. Among the Chinese, this faith in their central government to do the right thing protect the citizens, their livelihoods, and the country's borders is called the Heavenly Mandate. The Heavenly Mandate is a unique sociopolitical concept that includes all previous emperors and dynasties going back 5,000 years. The Heavenly Mandate stipulates that if the current Baba Beijing does not take care of the people's business, it will be replaced with a new one. The other key philosophy stated in China's constitution is that the CPC is authorized to use dictatorial powers to vanquish any anti-revolutionary imperialists and hegemonists, that's the Westerners, and fight the exploiting classes, meaning capitalists, both inside China, those are the fifth column Compradors, and outside China, the Western Empire. Who are all trying to overthrow the CPC via Western international institutions, NGOs, and internal and external psyops, black ops subversion. This unique overriding socio-political communist socialist mandate is still still true today in spite of the Dung Era reforms. There is widespread willful propaganda behind the Great Western Firewall to deny this anti-capitalist reality. Dung was a wily, masterful politician and charmer, and his diminutive body size disarmed his Western opponents, making them feel overconfident. He told them exactly what they wanted to hear, and Western empire began sharpening its knives, waiting to carve up and exploit China, just like it did for 110 years, from the 1840s opium wars until liberation in 1949. This period is known to the Chinese as the century of humiliation. But the real truth of Baba Beijing's intentions was expressed by Deng in 1982, and I'm quoting from uh, something he said, that Chairman Mao did very good things. Many times he saved the party and the state from crisis without him the chinese people would at the very least have spent much more time groping in the dark chairman mao's greatest contribution was that he applied the principles of marxism leninism to the concrete practice of the chinese revolution pointing the way to victory it should be said that before the 60s or the late 50s many of his ideas brought us victories and the fundamentalist and the fundamental principles he advanced were quite correct. He creatively applied Marxism-Leninism to every aspect of the Chinese Revolution, and he had creative views on philosophy, political science, military science, literature, and art, and and so on. We won great victories for the revolution precisely because we adhered to Mao Zedong thought. We will reaffirm that his contributions are primary and his mistakes secondary. We will adopt a realistic approach towards the mistakes he made late in life. We will continue to adhere to Mao Zedong thought, which represents the correct part of Chairman Mao's life. Not only did Mao Zedong thought lead us to victory in the revolution in the past, it is and will continue to be a treasured possession of the Chinese Communist Party and our country. That is why we will forever keep Chairman Mao's portrait on Tiananmen Gate as a symbol of our country, and we will always remember him as a founder of our party and state. Moreover, we will adhere to Mao Zedong thought. We will not do to Chairman Mao what Khrushchev did to Stalin. Hmm, best as I can tell, there is not much market-oriented liberalism to tease out of Deng's statement. The world has now entered China's third great modern era, President Xi Jinping's, starting in 2013. Xi did not get a PhD in Marxism-Leninism, upon which his base Mao Zedong thought, for nothing. He is mobilizing China's people with his highly popular Chinese dream to achieve a moderately prosperous socialist society, thereby rejecting mindless consumption. This is the antithesis of America's gluttonous, greedy, self centered meism. The Chinese dream also fully encompasses the goal of living in a clean and safe environment. She knows that all those capitalist adoptions in China have badly degraded the air, soil, and water, as well as making it the world's poster child for unsafe working conditions as the Tianjin port explosion and numerous mining accidents can attest. Poll after poll shows that the people's democratic dictatorship is clamoring for green, clean, and safe. If Baba Beijing does not address its citizens' demands, it could quickly lose the heavenly mandate. Baba Beijing will undoubtedly use the Tianjin port disaster as an administrative cudgel to push through more costly and stringent work safety legislation. The owners of the port storage company Zhuihai International Logistics will surely face capital punishment or spend the rest of their lives behind bars. The fact that Zhui is not a government-owned company also gives Baba Beijing a powerful bully, pul- bully pulpit to tout the benefits of state-owned enterprises. And they may use this tragedy to forcefully buy out privately held companies that are working in high risk fields. A big sign that China is still communist is that Baba Beijing is going in the opposite direction of Western colonialism by rolling out a massive nationwide social security and retirement program for anyone living here, even foreigners, if they pay payroll taxes. This ambitious initiative also includes universal health care for everyone, especially children, the elderly, and infirm. Meanwhile, the West is working furiously to dismantle its social and medical programs, or at the very least, making them much more expensive for its citizens, as well as looting many billions of dollars and euros from pension funds. Xi Jinping and the CPC are also fully committed to bringing China's 90 million poorest citizens out of extreme poverty by 2030. This while the West can't defund and cancel fast enough what's left of its sundered safety nets for society's most vulnerable. She is one of the world's most powerful leaders, yet he regularly underscores this government mandate to the press and the people, even traveling to pockets of severe poverty to drive home the point. The last U.S. president who openly talked about poverty was Lyndon Johnson, and that was 50 years ago. As a country founded on communism and socialism, I've never heard a Chinese citizen complain about the less privileged taking what they should rightfully keep as their own. The idea that China's worst off are economic leeches sucking off hard-working citizens is unimaginable and repugnant here. China is still very much communist because every square meter of this country is owned collectively by the Chinese people via the state. No one can buy the dirt under any piece of property. All one can do is have a long term lease which by legislation cannot exceed 70 years. For foreign businesses for foreign businesses, this is quite acceptable since there are very few capital investments, if any, That are not fully depreciated off the books in less than 50 years, most in 5 to 20. Anybody on planet earth can invest in China's real estate, but if you wish to keep it longer than 70 years, you will have to renew your lease contract and pay its going market value to do so. This is what China's constitution means that quote, the socialist transformation of the private ownership of the means of production was completed, end of quote, meaning the entire country's landmass was nationalized. Baba Beijing is continuing to try different ways of making the country's landmass more productive via creative laws and regulations, but it, it is still all collectively owned every square millimeter. The fact that China's lands are collectively owned is suppressed behind the Great Western Firewall because it, because it is inconvenient that such an incredible communist socialist economic success story is a proven fact. Only, quote, private ownership, end of quote, can assure the happiness and well-being of the people, or so goes the myth of Western capitalism, as peddled by Adam Smith and Francis Bacon. In reality, Smith and Bacon were only concerned with the prerogatives of the elite 1%. China's state sector, meaning government-owned businesses, dominates the national economy, and its presence is being felt more and more across our pale blue dot. There are 155,000 state-owned enterprises, the abbreviation is SOE, plural, SOEs, in China in every imaginable sector and industry. Their book value is U.S. 17.4 trillion, with a T, more than America's annual GDP. Since the 1990s, China has been and continues to adopt capitalist practices to make its SOEs perform better and be more transparent. A number of them are selling a portion of their ownership to the public by listing shares on Chinese stock markets, keeping the vast majority of ownership in government hands, usually up to a 70% government, 30% stock split. This sort of shareholder accountability has improved the performance of China's SOEs, which is Baba Beijing's goal. Some of the biggest SOEs are splitting off sector-specific businesses and then selling minority stakes in them on the stock market to allow these new entities to focus their specialized energies to compete on the national and world stage. Conversely, other SOEs are being consolidated to become planet-conquering giants in the energy, commodities, transportation, infrastructure, and communication sectors. Thirdly, SOEs are spending billions of dollars in Euros all over the world, buying outright or investing in stock traded companies to add to their bottom line, ironically now making them government owned under the SOE rubric. The bigger they are, the more profitable they tend to be. On the capitalist sacred list, Fortune's Global 500 companies, China's socialist behemoths are more and more competing head-to-head with the West's most successful stockholder corporations. In 2000, China only had 10 companies listed on this capitalist holy grail. By 2010, the count was up to 46, and this year, 99. Only 22 of these nearly 100 Chinese companies are majority shareholder-owned. All the others are proudly flying the flag of China's People's Democratic Dictatorship. How profitable are China's government-owned corporations? Last year, China's 12 biggest SOEs on the Global 500 list made a combined total profit of $201 billion. China's Democratic Dictatorship owns the world's largest petroleum company called Sinopec, bigger than Exxon Mobil, BP, and Shell, the largest bank, ICBC, bigger than Citibank, HSBC, and Bank of America, the largest utility business, the state grid, bigger than Eon and Electricite de France, the largest construction engineering firm, China State Construction Engineering, bigger than Bechtel and KBR, the largest railroad business, China Railway Engineering, the third largest telecom outfit, China Telecommunications, the sixth biggest insurance group, China Life Insurance, and the tenth largest automobile manufacturer, SAIC. The Chinese people own four of the world's top ten banks and two of the five largest petroleum concerns. The largest of these publicly owned SOEs are managed by the world's wealthiest sovereign asset organization, China's State Assets Supervision and Administration Commission. The abbreviation is SASAC, and uh, we say SASAC. SASAC answers directly to the highest levels in Baba Beijing's hierarchy, the State Council, which is headed by China's premier, Li Keqiang, he's the number two man behind Xi Jinping. He is eminently qualified, qualified having earned a law degree and a PhD in economics. SESAC keeps tabs on what are considered strategic se- sectors, which include aerospace, airlines, aluminum, architecture and design, automotive, aviation, banking, chemicals, coal, cotton, electronics, engineering, forestry, heavy equipment, gold, grain, intelligence services, iron, materials, metallurgy, mining, non-ferrous metals, nuclear energy, ocean shipping, oil, pharmaceuticals, postal services, rail, salt, science and technology research, shipbuilding, silk, steel, telecoms, travel, and utilities. Most of these sectors are state monopolies or nearly so. Other sectors that are state, state monopolies or are dominated by SOEs are airports, arms and weapons, banks, dams with their hydroelectricity, insurance, ports, tobacco, solar and wind energy, and toll roads and bridges. Western Empire's utter denial and arrogance towards China's communist-socialist economic model were embarrassingly revealed recently by a World Bank assessment report. In it, a couple of graphs were presented showing that China's FIRE sectors, F-I-R-E, meaning Fire, Insurance, Real Estate, are essentially state monopolies, which is of course true. This admonition admonition was termed as an insulting threat to Baba Beijing as if China's leaders and people don't know what's best for them. It stated that if China does not reform its financial sector, whose Western definition means selling off all state-owned fire assets to the West, then trouble could lie ahead. It also derisively commented that all this state control is, quote, making China an outlier by international standards, end of quote. Well, I should hope so, because China's economy is communist socialist and not at all capitalist. The World Bank gaffe of conceit was extirpated from the report a couple of weeks later with the lame excuse that it it had not been adequately reviewed before publication. The fact of the matter is, this was a classic Freudian slip, which accurately mirrors Western Empire's true fears. Why? Because China's economic performance has, since 1949, beaten the pants off of unfettered free-market America by a long shot, and China's superior communist-socialist model will increasingly outpace Western colonialism as it slowly collapses into irrelevance. This is what truly frightens Western colonialism to the quick. With the advent of China's communism socialism rising up as an alternative to the West's 1%, 99% system of exploitation and resource extraction, imperial propaganda has been relentless in brainwashing its citizens to deny this model's existence and discredit its many successful examples around the world. Instead of America and the West being looked up to and admired as the model to adopt, China is rapidly taking center stage to offer the world a different vision, revolutionary red, communism, socialism. In fact, it is already happening. SOEs are popping up all across the world economy. In 2014, 23% of the global 500 companies were SOEs compared to only 9% in 2005. This trend should continue into the 21st century since China has shown that its economic model is clearly superior to Western colonialism. If Baba Beijing can bring the Chinese dream to full fruition by the stated goal of the year 2050, humanity just might have a chance to survive after all. The next time someone starts regurgitating Randian Chicago school jungle capitalism tripe, hit back with the facts in this article and share its link. We owe it to future generations to bring down the Great Western Firewall and speak truth to power. That's the end of this podcast. This is Jeff J. Brown for the Greenville Post, a dispatch in Beijing. I hope you have a wonderful evening and take care.